Good morning. It's a blessing and a privilege to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity to share with you this morning from the Word of God. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we ask that you would anoint the eyes of our hearts that we may see those things which you want to make clear and plain to us today. We thank you, Father, because you brought us into this place in the unity of your Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we just pray that you would allow our hearts to be broken with the things that break your heart. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be wholly acceptable unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like, you may take the sermon notes, which happen to be on this uh, yellow piece of paper, but you have it in your, uh, in, your, um, in your little bundle. There are ten parables in the Gospels. Parables reveal God's heart and the culture of his kingdom. And we focused this morning particularly on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right off the bat, I want to say to you that that's a contradiction in terms. To the Jews, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. The Samaritans came as a result of the Assyrian invasion into Israel, and they were carried back as prisoners. And those Jews who intermingled in marriage with the Assyrians ultimately settled in the area of Israel known as Samaria. But they were known to the Jews as half-breeds. And in fact, there was a saying that uh, was quite common, and that is, you never want to help deliver a Samaritan child because you'll just bring one more pagan into the world. That's how the Jews felt about the Samaritans. But Jesus takes this opportunity to use this parable to reflect to this canon lawyer a truth and a reality. Remember the parable that Nathan the prophet used to reflect David in his sin to him. It is a remarkable thing that we can be in horrible circumstances, sins beyond our belief and not even be able to see them. But in David's case, he didn't realize that what Nathan was describing to him was himself. And it brought about the writing of the 51st Psalm, the great repentance of King David. A few days ago, my wife and I were uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, and we went to the Salvador Dali Museum. If you haven't ever been, you would, you would enjoy it if you like art, if you love art. And some of the most incredible works that this genius of an artist created, one particular work is a picture of his wife. He loved to put his wife in, inside of his pictures. And she's standing with her back to, to the audience, looking through a window at a beautiful garden. And all around her, there were beautiful colors that the artist had put in his marvelous work. And when our docent, our tour guide, came and began to show us and tell us about the painting, he asked, 
ask us to turn our back to the painting so that our backs would be completely concealed from what we were viewing. And he pulled out of his, his carry sack a parabolic mirror and he walked around us and he let us see the reflection of the beautiful painting in his mirror. And we no longer saw the landscape, Yala, Dolly's wife, or any of the beautiful colors. As we looked at the parabolic mirror, the parable of a mirror, we saw a beautiful portrait of Abraham Lincoln. Salvador Dali was a master at doing what's called layering in his artwork, and he could plant things in his pictures that you just couldn't see unless you just happened to see it the right way. Parables are designed to do that. It comes from the word parabolic. If you've seen satellite receiving antennas, antennas that, like we get our satellite TV signals, those are parabolic antennas. And so that parable is designed to show us something that we haven't yet seen. The Good Samaritan parable is about opportunity. Jesus is telling us, as he was telling the canon lawyer, there is an opportunity to act in a neighborly fashion and to care for broken and wounded people. But we must see that opportunity, and we must seize upon it. Jesus sets the scene of a location between, of, of this location between Jerusalem and Jericho. There is a great descent from Jerusalem to Jericho. Uh, Jericho is actually about 3,000 feet below mean sea level, about 3,600 feet below Jerusalem. And Jesus sets the story in that setting. And the players in the parable, as you heard, are the priest, the Levite, the Good Samaritan, and the wounded man. He tells the story in response to the canon lawyer's question that was designed to test him, to see if he could find a flaw in what Jesus responded. The canon lawyer asked the question, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And it's interesting because it was ignorantly asked, but it was the right question. Jesus said in so many words, you have phylacteries. Phylacteries were leather boxes that uh, Pharisees would wear around their wrists. And he said, you have the answer to that question on your wrist. And he begins to give him, you shall love the Lord thy God with everything you are and your neighbor as yourself. In fact, most Pharisees carried the phylacteries in the phylacteries written out scripture of Exodus 13, 1 through 16, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Leviticus 18, 19. They actually carried these scriptures written in their little boxes on their wrists. So the answer, Jesus said, is on your very wrist. You'll love, you should love the Lord your God with everything you are and your neighbor as yourself. There's a temple in China. It's a called the Palace of Worksong. There hangs a hall of glass. It is called the Hall of a Thousand Mirrors. You enter, and a thousand hands are stretched out to meet you, and a thousand smiles greet your smile. A thousand eyes will weep when you weep. 
but they are all your hands, all your smiles, all your tears. It's the perfect picture of a narcissistic person. Self all around, self multiplied equals self deceived. This is the condition of the canon lawyer. When religion stands in the way of compassion is a perfect description of what has happened with the Jews. God called them, endowed them with his goodness and his grace and his mercy, and he said, go forth and be a blessing to the world, but instead they become self-oriented, self-focused. And they would only reciprocate, they would never initiate. But Jesus called us to be initiators as the picture he gives us with the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan, not only does he bind up the wounds of the broken man, and he pours oil and wine into the wounds so that they might heal, but he takes him and places him upon his own animal and carries him to the inn. And there he gives money to care for the man until he can return, and he tells the innkeeper, take care of him, and if it costs more than I've given you, I'll, I'll settle up with you when I get back. He had initiated grace and goodness and wholeness to this broken man. Jesus calls us to do the same. But with the Jews, religion stood in the way of compassion. And we can become so interned that we don't see the opportunities that Jesus gives us to heal and bind up broken wounds. Beginning the day, Lord, show me the wounded people you'll put in my pathway. You'll be surprised at how many people God will bring across your path that you will see as that wounded person. And he will give you the very word that will minister healing and health. James 4.17 says, if you know to do good and you don't do it, it's sin to you. We uh, use the term omission, sins of omission. When we know to do good and don't do it, it is sin to us. So God calls us to do the good that we see that we can do, that we're capable of doing, that he empowers us to do, to embrace people who are utterly different from us. And this is what the Good Samaritan did. He was embracing a broken Jewish man that the priest and the Levite passed by and wouldn't take the time nor the compassion to help. Embrace people who are utterly different from us. We like our comfort zone. We don't like to be bothered with people who are not like us. But Jesus calls us to initiate in the power of his grace. He calls us to initiate engagement in the world. It was Plato who made the statement, the penalty, good men pay for indifference to public affairs is to be ruled by evil men. I'm going to say that again because I want it to stick with you. Plato, over 2,000 years ago, made this statement. The penalty good men pay for indifference to public affairs 
is to be ruled by evil men. Jesus calls us to engage in public affairs as the Good Samaritan engaged with the wounded man. Now, I'm going to be meddling with you a little bit because I am talking politics in an election year. But I want you to be aware of this. Biblically, there is no division between the secular and the sacred, even though that's the way the world wants us to behave. That's what the world wants us to do. But Jesus' principles are demanded wherever biblical values are rejected. We can sometimes feel that our values are being rejected so often that we become desensitized and we become apathetic. But Jesus calls us to engage. Love demands our energies, for example, to reverse the atrocity of abortion. Love demands it. It is a modern-day holocaust. Public policies of this nation must reflect Christ's character. Can you get that in the conviction level of your heart? Public policies of this nation must reflect Christ's character. And we can't rest until it does. Nearly a million abortions took place last year. That's 21% of all pregnancies ended in the year 2015 with abortion. It's staggering when you realize that just 21 days after conception, a little heart starts beating in its mother's womb. And heartbeats matter. And the more helpless the victim, the more hideous the assault. Jesus reframes the dialogue with the canon lawyer, and I'm so glad he has the ability to do that. He often reframes the dialogue that I'm engaged in with him because I come asking the wrong questions. And he reframes the dialogue, and he begins to say, the important thing here is not who you define as your neighbor, because the the canon lawyer wanted to really boil it down so that only Jews and only Jews who were really close to him, in fact, only people who were under his roof were his neighbor or maybe his next door neighbor. But certainly not a Samaritan and certainly not this Jew that's broken on the side of the Jericho Road. And Jesus turned the dialogue around and he said, what's important is not that I tell you who your neighbor is, but that you be a neighbor. And this is what a neighbor will do. What kind of neighbor am I? I think the Jericho Road is a metaphor for life. I love the book um, by Eugene Peterson, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. In the words of John Newton, through many dangers, toils, and snares have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me on. The Jericho Road is approximately 17 miles long from Jerusalem to Jericho. As I've said, it descends over 3,000 feet, literally 3,600 feet, from Jerusalem to Jericho. There were hydrologists and engineers a few decades ago who actually did the groundwork with the idea of building a canal from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea, which would run parallel to the Jericho Road. 
They could, they proposed build seven hydroelectric dams along that canal and they could electrify the entire Middle East just from the descent from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea. It's a desolate place. It has dunes and caves and canyons, a perfect place for robbers to act out treachery. Kind of reminds me of living in the United States these days. But it's impossible to obey the great commandment without the empowerment of God's amazing grace. But he empowers us to be able to minister to the needs of others. I want to leave you with three scriptures that come from that wonderful book of Hebrews, a book that's uh, amazing in its Christology and its, its message of salvation and redemption and its pictures of coming before God's presence and what His purposes are in our lives. And I want to plant these three words in your heart to go with you today. Number one, anchored, Hebrews 6, 19. Jesus is a forerunner. He has gone before us to place our anchor in the life and presence of God. This word forerunner is a nautical term, and it is a term used for a small boat that would come out from safe harbor, crossing a sandbar that would protect the harbor from storms and waves and typhoons. And that little boat would come out to the heavy-loaded cargo ships and take their anchor while the tide was low and place the anchor beyond the sand dune in the safety of the harbor. So it wouldn't matter what kind of storm came. The ship was moored in the harbor even though it was still outside of the harbor. See, the Word of God says, this wonderful passage says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the veil where Jesus, who went as a forerunner, as a forerunner before us because he has become our high priest. The second word I want to leave with you, anchored is the first, is centered. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who diligently seek him. The famous missionary to India who had such an influence over Mahatma Gandhi, E. Stanley Jones, makes this statement. He said, most Christians live on the outer boundaries of faith and lose their greatest blessings. You may be living on the outer boundaries of your time, your talent, your treasure, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And God calls us to trust Him and to draw near to Him with everything we are. So there's anchored, there's centered, and then there's being fully focused. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Suffering is never for nothing. Those are the words of Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, the missionary who gave his life to take the gospel to the Alka Indians. And Elizabeth says, suffering is never for nothing. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source 
and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.